0: Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders podcast. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my old friend, Jim Ware, the founder of Focus Consulting Group in Chicago. Now, I think Jim refers to his firm as a company that helps leverage high-performing investment organizations. I've also heard it described as a firm that has effectively become the assessor and evaluator of high-performing investment organizations, but I just think of you as the culture consultant. (laughs) Uh, You have long been a thought-provoking author, you're a frequent industry speaker, and you're a very good guy down to your bones, so thank you for joining (laughs) me today.
1: I'm delighted to be here, Chaz. This is a fun opportunity since we, when you say... uh, Old friend, uh, that's that's not too far off the mark. Uh, Yeah, we're longtime friends, and I think I think you and I first met when they were trading stocks in the street somewhere. You know, (laughs) we've had a great long friendship. I can comment for a minute, Chaz, on uh, the nice summary of what we do. We had a strategic strategic session earlier this week, so we're actually very much thinking about that. As some of you know, we had a, a brilliant. Investment thinker Michael Falk and our team who passed away in September at ALS and he passed away so we've we've had to rejigger things and figure out you know who we are, what we're doing. Uh, our Our statement, as Chaz says, uh, has long long time been that we uh, leverage the talent within organizations. So we're really interested in who you have in your organization, are they? Are they operating at a really good level? You know, bringing their A game. Uh, is the culture, as Chaz said, is the culture set up that allows them to play at their highest level? So that's the way we started. We started 21 years ago, and that was first book I ever wrote. Well, the first book I wrote was called The Psychology of Money. That's a kind of a side story. But then, then I wrote Investment Leadership because I thought the industry could really use some thoughts about what it is to lead
0: an investment firm. So Jim, let's talk a little bit about your background and how you came to start focus. Sure. So I had
1: fairly traditional, aside from the fact that I was philosophy major in college, which is not so traditional money manager, although there are famous money managers like uh, Soros and and Bill Miller who um, were philosophy majors. Uh, and I think the reason is that, you know, philosophy does teach you to think critically about things. So you question, you ask why, those sorts of things. So then I went to University of Chicago Business School and things got pretty standard after that. I majored in finance. I, I My first boss was Gary Brinson, which was kind of interesting, trust department at, at First Chicago. And I got the CFA designation and I just did. Standard analytic work. You know, I studied the insurance industry, the banking industry, the media industry, and I, I wrote reports and I gave recommendations. Then I went to Allstate and I continued to do that for a while. And then I became a portfolio manager. Okay, I ran equities for I don't know 15 years. So about mid 40s, um, I asked myself, "Is this what I want to do for the the rest of my time?" And I had had some experiences within Allstate that really allowed me to explore things like facilitating groups and doing some coaching within Allstate. I, I dreamed up a creativity course, <laughs> and I started giving it to. I started giving it around the organization. <laughs> People would hear about it and they go, "Hey, that sounds pretty good." So, so I would go <laughs> do it. And the CIO would kind of scratch his head, like, "What are you doing? You're supposed to be running your portfolio." Well, you know, I just dreamed this up, and and uh, it, it was fun. So I did those kind of things, and I realized I, I really would like to um, do something a little different. A couple very um, uh, a, a synchronicities came up, whereby I was asked to speak on creativity at a CFA annual convention, which is kind of unheard of. I mean, it's not a common topic and those you know, are attended by 1500 people. And here I was talking about creativity. There was a uh, editor from Wiley Publishing in the audience and she came up and said, that was really interesting. Would you write a book about that? So the, these interesting kind of synchronicities, getting the speech, getting a, an author, I mean, an editor. To, so I wrote about it and uh, I started a fledgling little business about um, leadership, and culture in the investment world. And my first client was a, a friend of mine from Allstate that I'd known who is now with UBS. And yeah. so I, I got a big name, real client and I didn't know how to do the work. So I called in two friends of mine who did and they they basically did the consulting work. And, and I just continued to talk to my friends in the industry. And one thing led to another and pretty pretty soon we had a few clients. You know, but I was still in the mode where if they asked me to wash the windows, I would say, sure, you know, like whatever work they wanted, I would do, you know. And then I was smarter. This is where I was smart. I brought in, like you mentioned, Keith, and I mentioned Jamie and um, Michael Falk, you know, bless his soul. Uh, I brought in people who are really good. So my my role now is kind of to have these conversations with you, Chaz, and to kind of continue to Talk to the people I know in the industry, but boy, this team can can really bring it home. So um, that's my start.
0: Yeah, no, I, I remember the early days. I remember thinking, "Who is this guy?" And then I, started... <laughs> and then I did a little, then I did a little reading, and then I heard you talk somewhere, and I thought, you know, this is different. I think that's one of the things that you succeeded at early on is you were distinctive and Focus's work was distinctive. I still don't know anybody that really is a direct competitor to you. Yeah, There are people that do yeah. types of things and, <clears throat> and some of the services, certainly, but in terms of the package and how you bring it together, I don't know anybody that's quite like you.
1: Yeah, I think we found Blue Ocean. Remember that book, Blue Ocean, where, you know, yeah. Red Ocean where the sharks are eating a chum, and then there's, there's Blue Ocean where it's kind of open. And uh, I, I, I wish I could say I planned carefully for this, but I really didn't. I just followed what I found interesting and ended up in this, like you say, unique position where we offer this very different experience from a McKinsey or a, a Casey Quirk or any of these kind of firms. Yeah. It's just, it's just different, you know? And Well, congrats, continued congrats. But, So why don't I pass it back to you, Chaz, for some thoughts about what does leadership look like in the investment world?
0: Well, it's clearly a critical subject for us at Rosemont, trying to make uh, indefinite investments in firms that are essentially people, and we are constantly thinking about whether or not they are well led now. They're going to be well led in the future, Um, and it's actually. And I'm going to come back to this, Jim. It's probably been other than a persistent investment performance downturn, misjudgment of people has been my biggest regret of the few investments that we made in the last 22 years that didn't go well. It didn't happen much, but when it has happened, it's almost categorically been, these just were clearly not the people I thought they were. And they made decisions and treated others and, um, ran their firms in ways that I hadn't seen and I didn't expect. Now, you've seen a lot of different leaders um, as clients, and I'd love to kind of come back to what you think some of the common threads are to great leadership, enduring leadership. Yeah, well, of course, the perhaps the number
1: one thing is culture. So they, they care about culture, and they create one that really brings out the best in their people and allows the organization to thrive that doesn't mean that they there's a similar culture for great investment organizations because you know the classic example that everyone talks about is Bridgewater and that's a unique culture you know dalio really did a lot of things including writing this book principles which is packed full of you know his way of doing things And they, as most people know, they they have a high turnover rate the first couple of years because people arrive and they think this is Bridgewater. I'm going to get paid well. It's a famous organization. But uh, Dalio and his team are serious about a certain way the organization works. So that leadership has crafted a particular culture. And then many of the organizations we work with are very different from that. And yet they have crafted really good cultures. So organizations. We work with one that, you know, down in Florida called Poland Capital. Yep. They really have taken culture seriously. And they've, in our view, we, we do this assessment of cultures and, and we think it's pretty darn good after 21 years of tweaking it. And they just shine on this thing. And you ask, well, does that relate to success? Well, in their case, it certainly does. They, they've grown like threefold over the last five years and and who does that during this time period, you know, where we have COVID and, and competition within the industry and movement to passive and all that stuff. They're an active manager, and they, they're just flourishing because they take it seriously to create an environment where people are going to do their best work.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that you and I have long talked about, um, you know, we joke uh, about Robert Sutton's book, The No Asshole Rule. And mm-hmm. the I don't think that there's so many jerks, if we'll if we'll say it that way in our industry. But I would say that there are lots of leaders and people in senior positions who are not as transparent, who are not as communicative or not as mentoring. It's a lot of you'll figure it out. We hired you. We pay you. Here's what you do. Yeah, I would say that those words from my background seem to ring true all the time. Lack of yeah. transparency, lack of engagement. And, and I'd ask you this, Jim. One of the things I've seen with folks that get more and more successful is they become shallower.
1: Interesting. Yeah. The We talk a lot about the ego in, in, in our work. And the ego is kind of what gets you in trouble because it keeps you in that more shallow mode. People who are very ego-driven want to look good. They want to protect their wins. They want to make sure they retain their their power and their image, and so they get very defensive in in their sort of behavior, and that that ego makes a person shallow, and we prefer to preach and practice ourselves this notion of curiosity, openness, vulnerability. a lot been written and talked about. Uh, Brene Brown is probably the best-known person for doing TED talks and stuff on vulnerability. But vulnerability looks like being willing to say, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry." Th- those sorts of things, and that's a measure usually of a leader who's got true followers, is that they're they're more real, they're more a genuine person, and and they don't try to become this super person. They they're real and, and they get followers and they get loyalty for that reason.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I would add to that is that really good leaders learn and delegate well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They they stop trying to micromanage and, and they hopefully, if they had it, they lose the more um, dominant trait of I've got to control everything to I need great colleagues who can run with. You know, all type of issue and responsibility and that makes the whole firm better and a lot of firms particularly the smaller lifestyle and boutique style businesses they never really get out of that leader star system you know what's good for Jim wear has got to just be good for everybody else
1: right right yep and you know, we do work with personality styles because we really think that plays into this whole important notion of how do people work best together in the investment world. And there's, there's micromanaging in all the styles. The difference is why. You know, so you get perfectionists and they micromanage because they want to make sure everyone's doing it right, <laughs> but which is their definition of right. And then you get these high achievers and they micromanage because they want to win and somebody else won't do it well enough to win. So I better make sure I'm doing it. And then you get the power structure people, uh, the power personalities, and they just like to control anything anywhere. So they want to do it, but it happens throughout the industry. We do a lot of coaching on that of, you know, how's the delegation going? And it's not, they're keeping everything on their own desk. You know, it's few and far between that we get executives who really are pushing stuff off to others and really developing their people.
0: Well, two of the terms, and one of the things that we talk about uh, and others talk about is the vernacular of focus. Yeah. There's some great terms. So let's pick two of them sludge factor and the red X. So we're now talking sure. about leadership and the way <laughs> firms and management teams relate. So, how does the red X? Um, create or not help with the sludge factor problem or yeah. put those two together in a sentence right. for me talking right. about, you know, a high performing leadership and, and management group.
1: Yeah. Well, actually the one drives the other, you know, you get a red X. Let me explain what red X is. So <clears throat> red X years ago, we wrote this piece about uh, culture and organizations and uh, a sort of concentric Venn diagram, and and we put a little red X off to the side, saying if you get one of these red X's, it means they're not playing by the rules and they're not fitting in. And the red X just happened to be what we assigned that X; it was just red, but it caught on. So it, it had legs. You know, people said red X. We got a red X, so we use that term of someone who doesn't fit with an organization. Sometimes they can be a really great person. They just like Bridgewater, you could have a a person who doesn't fit. They're they're not a bad person. They just don't fit with the Bridgewater culture. So they would be a red X there often, more often than not, the red X is someone who, as you said earlier, uh, doesn't pass the no asshole test. You know, they, they really can be difficult Uh, back to ego. They have big egos. They want everybody to know how great they are. They want to, they ridicule people. You know, the definition in that book by Sutton was, um, an asshole makes someone else feel small you know. and they want other people to feel small. So so yeah, the red X is uh, an interesting leadership problem because red Xs are by definition high performers. Otherwise they wouldn't be there. You know, if you have somebody who's a jerk right. and they're and they're not very good, why would you keep them? Right. But we run into this all the time with firms that say, you know, we might need a little coaching for so-and-so because he's a terrific performer, but man, he, he drives out talent. Or he causes other talent to underperform. So there's a real cost to the organization.
0: And I'll give you another type that I think you've seen and worked with, which is uh, pretty much the polar opposite of the red X. I call this person the charmer, the snake oil salesman. Right. Typically impeccably well-dressed. Right. We've got a CEO uh, at one point in our investment life that was very much this person. Mm -hmm. I remember going to a... uh, meet with a potential acquisition for this company. And the CEO was just dressed to the nines (laughs) as if he were going to the Lincoln Center on opening night. (laughs) And immediately the prospect didn't trust him. Yeah. Potential acquisition just looked at him a little bit sideways. Like, I don't know that you really understood what kind of meeting you were going to, but, you know, I've come to describe that kind of person uh, as all hat and no cattle yeah yeah and, and yeah you know yeah or an empty suit which seems to be less prevalent given there's so many less suits being worn today but just in general folks that are much more concerned with appearance how yes. they look how others look how the situation looks
1: yeah yeah well that goes back to personalities you know we've studied the nine the nine personalities that we use to assess people um, the the one that is most prevalent is called the high achiever. no surprise there, right? And high achievers are very concerned about image and uh, they want to win okay that's fine, but they also want to look good. so you find a lot of the industry wanting to look good and that includes the fancy car, the big house the you know the uh, yeah. the, the, the lovely uh, significant other whether it's a man or woman
0: yeah. Yeah. and uh, and that's and, just- you know Jim we're not. And we're not saying that having any of those traits um, or uh, characteristics or things in life is bad. It's no, that not at all. Those at traits all. and characteristics are important that they be known by others, and they're they're almost kind of marketed or worn as right. badges. really more, more what we're saying
1: right. So let me talk a minute about sludge because that's a term that we also came up with that speaks to the behaviors and attitudes within an organization that clearly aren't going to contribute to success. So sludge factors come up in the culture survey, and the culture survey says which of these behaviors, attitudes are prevalent in your organization. And on the good side are things like integrity, excellence, client focus, all those sorts of things. But they also have a chance to choose sludge factors, and those are things like blame, uh, defensiveness, gossip, disrespect, uh, territorialism—you know, turf battles, those sorts of things. Um, Gossip—that's a real clear indicator of dysfunction. You know, we see an organization where there's a lot of gossip right away. That sludge factor tells us, "Uh-oh, there's some issues going on here." Um, But what we find when we go to organizations with a lot of sludge, a lot of those behaviors which show up on the culture survey is the number one antidote that the employees tell us, it's not we foist this on them, they tell us the number one thing we ought to do to lower sludge is focus on accountability. So interestingly, that's the antidote. And the way we teach accountability is not about let's find out who messed up and blame them and then punish them it's it's all about uh, taking responsibility so you want to hire people who are conscientious and you want to have employees who care about the quality of work they do and and then you want to make clear agreements about what it is they've been asked to do And, and it's an agreement so that the the boss and the Direct report, talk about it, and get a clear agreement about what's expected, and then you monitor that over time. Say the boss does, and when there are and there's exceeding the expectation, praise, appreciation. When they fall below, that's where you don't go into blame mode. You go into curious mode of, huh, help me understand what's going on, such that we're not, you know, meeting this uh, expectation. And then you discuss it and resolve it, hopefully. So now they're back on track, okay? But the key is that's feedback. And many organizations are weak at feedback. And you, our formula for accountability is 100% responsibility, Mean I'm fully in. It's a team and I'm gonna take part and I'm gonna make sure I'm taking responsibility. I'm gonna be conscientious, uh, plus, Clear agreements, which I just covered, you really need to know what is it you're expected to do. And the final piece is feedback. And many organizations come to us and say, you know, we don't have that final piece. Actually, we may not have all three, but the feedback piece, which involves candor, that's something that we really strive for with our clients is to help them develop a very candid culture. And that means there is safety. So there's no candor without safety and safety means that people are free to ask questions. People are free to push back. People are free to say, I don't know. People are free to say, I messed up. All those kind of things happen in a safe culture. If you don't have that, then people are going to clam up. They're going to keep their heads down. They're going to stay under the radar and they're not going to be forming at the kind of level. You're not going to have the debates and the discussions that produce great results.
0: What the, of the personality order disorder, the high achievers, what is that in the Enneagram scale? And then I want you to talk a little bit about the Enneagram work, because sure. I think Focus has done great work with the Enneagram, something I knew very little about. I think right. it's kind of a, a follow-on and an improvement to Briggs-Meyer. Yeah. Tell us about it, yeah. and then let's get back to high achievers.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, we're lucky we have in our team, Jamie Ziegler, who has the equivalent of a PhD in the Enneagram. It's an ancient tool for looking at what are the core motivations of an individual. And they found that there are basically nine. So people may be doing the exact same thing, but it's for a different reason, sort of, as I said earlier, about control. You may want to control things for different reasons, but the most prevalent in the investment world are the high achiever. That's a, a three on the Enneagram. And they are characterized by wanting to get ahead, wanting to win, wanting to climb up the ladder, wanting to be successful. Because that was their life strategy. As a kid, they wanted to get the best grades. They wanted to you know, be the prom queen or the football quarterback or whatever it was. They wanted to make a splash. The second most uh, popular in the industry is the perfectionist. And they're the oh. ones who they're hardworking, conscientious, want to get all the details right. They, they really are, are competency-based. They want to be seen as really good at what they do. Yeah. What are you? I'm an odd bird. I'm a four, which is really more of uh, an artistic, creative personality. And you know, Chaz, my, my shift from 20 years of running money, uh, CFA designation to what I do now was really the heart of it was just that, you know, my, my type likes to have these kind of conversations that we're having, where we, we discuss the, the nature of deep matters, you know, not superficial stuff, but rather deep matters. So I've loved what I've done at Focus because I have conversations with CEOs every week that are deep. Like, are we going to keep this guy or not? You know, he's a red X. Are we going to buy this company or not? Am I going to have to rearrange my senior team or not? I like those conversations. They're meaningful. They, they matter. And, yeah. and they get deep into, you know, me asking questions like, well, you know, what is it you really want to do? What, what do you want to achieve here? And, and that gets people sitting back and reflecting. Hmm, let me think about that.
0: Yeah, one of the other uh, personnel misjudgments, CEO misjudgments, love to get your thoughts on is with uh, a guy that we had who ran a business and things were going along very well. I thought the chemistry was pretty good. I mean, he was a bit of a three, uh, which is not a slight, but uh, um, I think very good for this company. Mm -hmm. And And then a paranoia developed ah was no from where we could see there was no particular reason for the paranoia the business wasn't burning down to the ground had lost a lot of key people performance wasn't horrible there were some challenges like there are all the time especially now but for whatever reason this person developed a paranoia and it became Mm. a more intense paranoia and he became I'm going to say like Al Pacino at the end of Scarface. (laughs) basically (laughs) He kind of pulled himself up in his house, in this case his office, and kind of got his gun out (laughs) and just shoot at anybody that came in or walked by or had an idea. And all of a sudden there was no sharing and it was basically his way um, and there was no sense of him being part of the company anymore. He was on his own. Yeah, Um, yeah. and, And it was the damnedest thing. I don't are. really know why it happened. We tried to talk all kinds of sense and 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 just talk it through, and all the issues, and we couldn't get anywhere. Um, yeah. You seen that? Yeah. You work with folks like that, where we we you have think you know people, and then yeah. they react in ways that are both defensive and paranoid and off-putting in ways that you you couldn't have seen. <laughs>
1: sounds like some medication might be a good thing for that person. And by the way, i'm not I'm not making fun of it. I have friends and whatnot who uh, had problems like that, and medication fixed it. so i'm I'm all for that. But that sounds pretty serious when someone goes over the deep end. we We did have a client on the West Coast. Now, I wasn't involved in this assignment, but my colleague, uh, Keith Robinson, who's great at this stuff, um, he was working with this company and with this CEO. And it got to the point where the c e o was not making sense. you know he'd be in a meeting and he was talking gibberish, and you were getting those sidelong looks from people like, "What the hell is going on here what what's he talking what it, was, it
0: wasn't it wasn't medical it wasn't early dementia. Uh, you're not referring to anything like that
1: uh who knows or, that was the yeah. thing. there we got beyond our depths. I mean we're really good coaches, yeah. and we can help people solve things, but this was Beyond, you know, you really needed an expert to assess what is going on here, such that he's lost his mental faculties. You know.
0: Yeah. Let's let's pivot Jim to something that your firm has worked on and I think helped develop strategies and uh, good consulting practice for your clients, and that's rewards. Yeah, yeah. Another little focus term, something that yeah. most most would call compensation. And as you know, you know, I had One of the first management consulting and research firms to the industry back in the late 80s. And one of the first things that we worked on was compensation architecture. Uh I always thought that it was much more interesting to determine how and why people were paid what they were paid, not what they were paid. And I think what Keith has done with your firm. Yep. Yep. And you and Keith and your colleagues have taken that to another level in terms of the connectivity of the behaviors and the rewards. Um, to the work, um, and less about just the outcome with what's the number. A great story yeah. that Keith shared that one time about the $14 million guy, the PM who was right got his bonus, and he made $14 million for the year, and he was happy for about 30 seconds until he found out about the guy who earned $15 million.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you are talking about transparency earlier. The only area where we have a little caution around transparency is money. Because it does really light up the ego, you know, like in that case, it was beautiful. But uh, yes, on the on the reward side and funny at our strategy meeting earlier this week, we we did say, let's call it compensation because that's still the accepted term. And that's what people see and, and CEOs recognize that they don't really know what rewards is. But as soon as we we have a new assignment with a client, we immediately start talking rewards. Because our view of it is that in this day and age, it is so much about the environment you're going to work in, the kind of leaders you're going to work for, the culture, than it is just about the dollar amount. And the most powerful story that comes to mind is uh, I was working with a firm uh, down in Texas, and they were looking at a high paid guy in New York, and they really wanted to get this guy from New York. And the long and short of it is he would have to take about a 50 percent salary cut to go to this firm in Texas. And I actually did some discussions with both sides of it to make sure everybody knew what was going on and that it was really a good marriage and that sort of thing. Long and short of it is he took the job. He, he left and, and went for 50% less because of the culture of that Texas organization. And so you can't tell me that it's just all about money. It's all about the holistic, you know, what are you getting into? What kind of firm are you joining? What kind of money can you make? But also, what's the experience going to be? And we just have countless examples of people who got fed up with a certain culture and they left in order to have a better experience. So we take all of that into account and we include the rewards Whoever's going to be rewarded, we include them in the dialogue, in the process, so they don't feel like it's being handed down. They had a say in how they're going to be rewarded, compensated, et cetera.
0: I'd like to finish with, I guess, you know, big thinking. I don't know whether or not any of it will prove to be prescient in any way, but maybe just for you and I to bat around some thoughts around something that I want to pose to you and see what you think, see if you agree or or Mm -hmm. disagree. And that is, I'm feeling that an industry that has long been pretty stable, pretty dependable, has a certain um, kind of homeostasis, if that's the right word. I'm feeling like that is really being marginalized away and edging away. I feel like the industry and many of the firms in it today are their futures and their businesses are much less certain. Mm-hmm. And the people that you work with, the, the teams, the businesses, the ownership, it's all become more ephemeral. Mm-hmm. It's become harder to endure as an organization as it is, perhaps in its optimal state, whether that's today or that was five or 10 years ago, because of either the absolute rash of MA, the crush of competition, relative, relatively ubiquitous fee pressure, the fact that, like it or not, baby boomers like us are getting older, retiring, and dying.
1: Mm-hmm. There's
0: just a lot going on that I think erodes what has been a constant And I feel like so much in in the industry today is much less constant, and that firms' abilities to sustain themselves in their current forms—not that they can't morph into something quite different—I feel like, from a client's point of view, if they thought about all those things and agreed with what I'm saying, that they would find it very unsettling. What's your take?
1: Yeah, I think those observations are insightful, and. I'll go to some data because we we really like to consider ourselves data driven so for all these different services I've mentioned that we offer you know the succession and the planning <clears throat> strategy culture leadership development coaching and stuff we we try to put data behind everything and the data that I can give you on what you just said is that in the culture surveys all and we've interviewed I mean culture surveyed hundreds of investment organizations from before and now during this whole pandemic and this whole change in the world, we see that there are several um, values, sort of asks, if you will, coming from the employees of organizations uh, in order to be successful. What do we need to do to be successful? And the three big ones are, we need to be creative because things are changing. We need to be able to think out of the box creatively. We need to be flexible and adaptive, and we need to be um, autonomous. We we need to have autonomy so people can do what they need to do. So those three are the big ones that are very different from prior. That's the Hmm. key. Those were not big before. Now they're big within an organizations. Hmm. The other thing we found is we have a bunch of what we call success factors that we measure when we uh, do a survey. With a company, and there are things like: can you uh, attract and retain top talent? Uh, do you do you make good timely decisions? You know the basics of what you'd have to have to be a an good organization. And what we found on the uh, all these success factors is, for for the firms before and during COVID, they had improved during COVID. It's like their grades went up during. COVID, mm-hmm. and the only explanation I know of is they had more autonomy. They, they could do things when they wanted, how they wanted, where they wanted. They weren't, like yeah. you said, micromanaged. They weren't get your butt in your chair, sit here, do your work, stay here for nine hours. We're gonna watch yeah. when you come in. Watch. They just said, they turned them loose and said, you can't come to the office anymore, but here's your assignment, go get it done. But,
0: and, that, but you know, Jim, that's very impressive that firms as you're talking about, not just survive, but that they could thrive in an environment which, let's face it, if you have any younger people, you have college graduates or folks younger coming in from other firms that you've hired who need to be mentored and brought along, you don't have the uh, water cooler conversations. You don't have the osmosis. You can't do it the same way. That's what a lot of big firm leaders have uh, said and believe, and I agree with that. Yes, yes. For firms to have thrived, in the last couple of years, that I wouldn't have seen that coming. I, I didn't either. I was, I was, uh, and we, and we wrestle with this
1: question all the time about whether investment firms should move towards more and more autonomy. Um, Poland, for example, I mentioned earlier, they've moved to results-only environment, and that means you don't have to come to the office, you don't have to work certain hours, you just get the work done. They moved entirely to that, and as I said, they've had phenomenal success, so they really trust their people. And so when, when COVID hit, they didn't have to change
0: anything. They were already in a COVID state because they said you don't have to be here in the first place. The new normal that we seem to be entering into. Now everybody's wondering when are we going to get out of the pandemic, and you know what will be the last variant? When can I get back to work the way it used to be? I think Poland's probably a little bit of an exception, even though so many folks in our business are now working from home, and I think pretty well. Um, I think that staying home the whole time for any firm that has has a lot of evolving to do. I mean, guess, I guess that could be anybody, but for a firm that is embarking on new strategies with lots of new hires and is really trying to evolve materially, I think that's going to be hard to be results for sure. only. For sure. And the funny thing is, Chaz, Poland's been pretty
1: relaxed around coming to the office, you know, many, many organizations that are bigger and a little more bureaucratic, you know, you can't come to the office, this sort of thing. Uh, Poland has said, I think all along, if you don't come to the office, come to the office. And, and most of their investment people do. So even though they don't have to, they do for the reasons you're saying, they really like having those conversations in the coffee room, you know, and stopping by somebody's office um, pulling two guys together on the spur of the moment to say, what do you think of this? They like all that. So don't confuse autonomy with, well, we're never going to see each other because that's that's not what we mean. But you do have organizations, we, we work with some that are bigger and a little more bureaucratic, and, and they, you know, when things started to get better before Omicron, they said, okay, everybody back four days a week. Yeah. And,
0: and they got people quitting. They had people quitting saying, uh-uh. I think it's, this is a hard mandate. I think you've got to be very flexible in your thinking. Let's pivot to um, maybe a last point I'd love to make. Some time ago, you'll tell me when, you identified success factors or perhaps yeah. the most successful firms among focused clients. And it was a very interesting mix of firms, large and small, <clears throat> domestic and international, What would you think about reassessing those success factors in another couple of years once we've kind of lived through COVID and this new normal? I wonder whether those are going to change materially. I think they will. Uh, Back to the
1: point we just made, I think the really good firms are going to understand and work with this autonomy concept. Because what we've found is the three of these internal factors, call them intrinsic factors, are big motivators for investment people. You know, Dan Pink wrote about this. Things like a real compelling reason to work where you really feel connected to your work. Things like autonomy. I get to work the way I want, how I want to work. Um, Things like uh, purpose where the kind of work that we do is meaningful in the world. It's not just digging holes and filling them up again. Um, Those things are becoming much more motivators for knowledge workers, for investment workers. So I think we'll see a movement in that direction. Um, we're also going to see uh, a lot more, um, I, I think because of what I said earlier, I think we're going to need to see more creativity, flexibility. Yeah. I, I don't think like you described the, the firms that are more traditional and yeah. will just keep doing what we're doing. We've worked with some of those firms more recently and they're struggling. They're struggling and it's tough because they, many of them are older boomers and and they don't really want to change, but they have these younger people working for them who are all into tech and all this different stuff and they think differently and they have different value systems and it's a new world and the the people who are running some of these firms, first gen, second gen, third gen, the first gen are really having trouble in many cases staying up with the second and particularly the third mm-hmm. gen. So so we do a lot of succession work and boy, those conversations get really
0: interesting, really fast. Oh. Well, that's another whole topic. It's actually something that we've <laughs> been writing a few, <laughs> right. a few articles on lately that are coming out. So with that, the spirit of your webinars, hit it and quit it. Yeah. Let's yeah. quit it. All uh, right. It wasn't 20 minutes, but I really enjoyed talking with you, Jim, and look forward to seeing you again. I do too, Chaz. You're
1: you're a man among men. You're a good guy, and you know the industry. And you're always fun to be with. Appreciate it, Jim. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye for now.